You're listening to the City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. If I were to ask you, if you could choose between a calling and a career, would choose the calling? What if they're both? Yeah, we'll talk about that. I, I, I suspect that most people, uh, when asked that question, would, after prayerfully considering it for a moment, as good Christians do, would choose the calling, would choose the calling over the career. Now, there may be a small percentage of you that have made a career out of your calling. That does happen. Statistically, it's rare. It does happen. People in ministry, such as myself, I would consider what I do absolutely a calling on my life, but it is technically also my career, meaning it's, it's what I do to provide for myself and my family. I do this specifically, solely. Uh, people in uh, the, the medical world, medical professionals, uh, typically have, I've noticed, a desire to uh, heal people, serve people, care for people that far supersedes what you would expect in a normal career. It's more of a calling. They've sort of made their career into a calling or, or maybe their calling led them to that career, however you want to think about it. But by and large, I think most people would choose a calling over a career despite the fact that you have no real idea what that even means. Like you know that it's out there, you know that the God of the Bible calls people to specific things. You're just not entirely sure what that would look like for you. So we're going to talk about that this morning. And, and not because I want to talk about it, but because we continue in the gospel of Mark this morning. And it's the next thing Mark really talks about. If you have your Bibles, open them to Mark chapter we are uh, picking up where we left off all the way back in November, which feels about like it was two years ago. Um, we left off uh, at verse 12. And so this morning we begin, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 21. That's where we're spending our morning. This is an important text. It's an important text for the scope of Mark. It's, the, uh, it's an important text for really understanding how the New Testament in many ways forms, because it's the text wherein Jesus calls the original 12 as apostles. Let's read verses 13 through 19 if you have your Bibles with you. It says this, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the 12. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Notice that it says, right up in the beginning, he called to him, those whom he desired. They were called by Christ to follow, not only follow him, but to be appointed as apostles. But they were called. I mean, this is the language that you come to expect in the scripture with regard to God's calling on the lives of individual people. All throughout the Bible, God calls specific people to himself for specific tasks or purposes. 
So for example, uh, Genesis chapter 12, one, God calls Abraham, who at the time was still named Abram, he says, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then all throughout chapter 12 and really through several chapters after that following in Genesis, you see the call of God on Abraham's life carried out as he becomes the first patriarch to what eventually becomes the people of God. Abram is called by God. God also calls various prophets throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Jeremiah 1.5, for example, God says to the prophet Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, uh, speaks to the value of the unborn life, I might add. God continues, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. He appoints or calls Jeremiah into prophetic ministry to witness to or <coughs> prophetically minister to the surrounding nations, including his own nation, which he ends up spending probably more time on than anyone else, speaking the judgments of God against them and calling them to repent of their sins, as prophets typically do. In the New Testament, he calls the church to himself. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are God's people. One thing we learn about God in the Bible throughout the sort of the whole scope of the Bible is that God is a God who, for one, calls people to himself for specific tasks and purposes. He calls the patriarchs, he calls the prophets, he calls the church, and here in Mark 3, he calls the original 12 apostles. So here's what I want to do this morning. I, I want us to run through this list of names that's given here and briefly give you a, a snapshot of each of them because these guys are very important. I mean, what we're going to find out is that they, they are very important to church today even. And, and, and we know a lot about some of them. We know shockingly little about others of them. And, and given just the importance of them, that might come to surprise you a little bit. But what I want us to do is comb through this list and then spend the rest of our time talking about what an apostle is and what it isn't. And then at the end of this, I want to give you some general thoughts on the calling of God as it might apply to you in your life today. God called the 12 to be apostles. And while I do not believe he calls people to be apostles anymore, I'll explain why here in a little while, he does call people to other things. And so I want you to walk out of here this morning with a little bit of a clearer picture of the purpose of God's calling on your life. Because here's the deal. If you're a Christian, you've been called by God. And you need to understand what that calling is. Sound good? Hopefully it does, because it's where we're going anyways. Kicking and screaming. Here we go. Uh, I want to warn you up front that I am going to give you a bit more information this morning than I typically do. Uh, we're going to be walking through these names. There's a lot of names. There's a lot of details surrounding these individuals. And I'm just going to kind of throw it all at you. But here's the deal. I'm confident you can handle it. Because you're bright theologians. Ready to learn. Am I right? Let's start with the 12. Who are these guys? The first one mentioned should be, I think, familiar to you. Uh, it lists him as Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. This is Peter, the one that is, uh, we talk about regularly, I feel like, in church circles, particularly in the New Testament. This is not the first time he's mentioned, by the way, in Mark's gospel. If you remember all the way back to chapter 1, Chris preached on, Pastor Chris preached on the calling of the first disciples 
Mark 1.16, it says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. <coughs> Excuse me? I've been coughing for like three weeks, so if I cough mid-sermon, it's not a part of the notes. Uh, it's spontaneous. <laughs> this Simon is the same one that we see in verse 13 here uh, that is also called Peter. It's the same Peter, incidentally, that wrote First and Second Peter. He is a very important part of the development of the New Testament. He's also part of what we call the inner three. So the inner three were apostles that had special access to Jesus, even above the other nine. They got to witness certain miracles of Jesus that the other nine didn't get to witness. They were there for things like the transfiguration, really monumental moment in the ministry life of Jesus. Uh, the other nine were not present for that either. They, they just had some special access and intimacy with the Lord that the others did not get to enjoy. Peter was a part of that inner three. Beyond that, Peter plays a prominent role in the book of Acts. Uh, it, it makes sense then, as you're reading this list, that he's the first one listed. He's a prominent person. Uh, he is very important to the development of the church and theology at large, and so it makes sense that, that Mark would name him first. Beyond that, if you remember all the way back to the beginning of, of this whole sermon series, I mentioned to you that Mark's gospel is historically referred to by the church fathers as the memoirs of Peter. Mark, John Mark, uh, we, we learn through history, was copying down the stories told by Peter concerning Jesus. So, of course, Mark's going to list him first. Peter's the one dictating the words to him. He's like, put my name down first. <clears throat> Peter predictably follows the other two of the inner three. It says, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges. That's a Greek word that we've just transliterated right into English. That's why it's a weird-sounding word, because it's not really an English word. Uh, and it means the sons of thunder. Here's what we know about James, the son of Zebedee. He is one of the inner three apostles. He's the elder brother to John of Zebedee. And he is the, actually the first of the 12 apostles to die for his allegiance to Jesus. So he's not the first of the 12 to die in general. That spot belongs to Judas, but Judas does not die for his allegiance to Jesus. He dies actually really for his lack of allegiance to Jesus. James is the first one to die as a martyr or a uh, witness of Jesus of the apostles. Acts chapter 12 verse 2 tells us that James was executed by the sword under the leadership of Herod Agrippa I. That's uh, a really fundamentally important part of the apostles' history. Beyond that, those three details that I just gave you, we know nothing else about James the elder brother, uh, which is really kind of shocking because as important as he apparently was, uh, he was a part of the inner three. Uh, there's nothing much more written about him. Now, his brother John, on the other hand, we know a lot about. He's the younger brother of the two brothers. Uh, John was one of the ones tasked to prepare the final Passover meal alongside Peter in the gospel accounts wherein Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, something that we're going to be observing this morning as a church body, by the way. Uh, John was one of the two disciples tasked to put that thing together. Traditionally, he is identified in the gospel according to John as the disciple whom Jesus loved. We believe this is how he refers to himself because we believe that he was the author of the gospel according to John. And not only that, but 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, or uh, as we call it more regularly, revelation. And not, critically, revelations, right? Singular, one revelation, 
We've got to get that right. He's known historically as the Apostle John. Uh, he's also called John the Elder and John of Patmos. He's called John of Patmos because history tells us that John, um, they attempted to execute John by boiling him alive. Sounds horrible. And he survived. And so rather than trying to kill him a second time, they were like, he's stubborn. Just put him on that rocky island over there where he's cut off from everybody else and he'll be fine. Of course, that's where he writes Revelation. That's why they allow it to be circulated, by the way, historically. They think he's crazy. He's been living alone on an island. He's half dead. They read it. They're like, this doesn't make any sense. It's fine. Let it go out. And uh, we get the book of Revelation that way. Paul, the apostle, refers to him in Galatians 2.9 as one of the pillar apostles. So John is a very big deal in the early church. He's an incredibly important figure in the development of the early church. So that's the inner three, Peter, James, and John. And just as a side note, I think this is important for you to hear. It is not only perfectly okay, but I think it's actually important for you to have a select group of close people in your life with whom you share intimate details. You should be kind to everyone. You should have a robust community within the people of God, within the, the faith community and the church at large. But within the larger body of people, it is okay and actually I think very important to your spiritual formation to have a select group of close people to share the intimate details of your life with. It's, it's, the Lord himself does this. He has the 12, but within the 12, he has the inner three. And they are privileged to know things and to see things that the other nine do not have privilege to know or see. That's okay. That kind of closeness is important. Beyond the inner three, we have Andrew, who we learned in chapter one is the brother of Peter. Uh, the rest of these guys, interestingly enough, apart from Judas, do not appear by name again in Mark's gospel. And very little is known about most of them. Uh, for example, Philip is a Macedonian name. It's about all we know. Uh, Bartholomew is uh, not even a proper name at all, actually. It's what we would call a patronymic name, meaning a name of the father. Uh, this name roughly translates as the son of Talmai. So this is more of a, a familial name for him than a, a given name. Matthew is not mentioned again by name in Mark's gospel, although he is identified in this book elsewhere as Levi, his other name. He has two names, which was common in the ancient world. Levi was a tax collector, that Jesus called to follow him in Mark chapter two. Uh, he is also the same Matthew or Levi who authors the gospel according to Matthew, same exact one. Thomas uh, is of course most well known for what? His lack of faith. What do we refer to him as? Doubting Thomas, which by the way is just such a great, like what a great standard uh, to be remembered by. The one who had very little faith, but he was one of the good guys. Like, I mean, there's no, no one would expect anything of you. It's kind of the best of both worlds. You get to be an apostle and yet no expectations for you whatsoever. No pressure at all. I love that. Uh, interestingly, Thomas is an Aramaic name that means twin. So it's likely that he had a twin. And if it was a twin brother, then you can almost imagine, the Bible didn't tell us this, but maybe there was a twin running around who often told people he was an apostle, even though he wasn't. I, I just kind of like to imagine that. James, the son of Alphaeus. Here's what we know about James, the son of Alphaeus. This is an interesting one. His name is James, and he's the son of Alphaeus. <laughs> That's all we get. And he's an apostle, apparently. Uh, Thaddeus, likely the same person in the book of Acts, who is called Judas, the son of James. I like to think that perhaps because of the reputation of the name Judas, he's like, I'll go by my middle name, Thaddeus, right? I don't know that that's really true. I'm just, I'm, I'm just con it's conjecture. 
Uh, very little known about him as well. And, and then we get Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot apparently was connected to a well-known nationalistic revolutionary group known as the Zealots. They were not a good group of people. They were very radical, uh, could be rather violent in certain contexts. And uh, so he was apparently a reformed zealot. Uh, and, and because there was already a more well-known, more established Simon Peter, he is known as Simon the Zealot. And then last and certainly least, we get Judas Iscariot, a name that roughly translates as Judas, man of Kerioth. Kerioth is a a city located south of Judea. It's mentioned in Joshua 15.25, uh, so likely Judas was from that region. Judas served as the treasurer of the apostles. We know that from John's gospel. It says that Judas, having charge of the money bag, used to help himself to what was put into it. Uh, so a little bit of a sleazeball, stealing money from the church. Uh, Judas is an interesting character. He's an interesting character because from the very beginning, he is known to Jesus as the one who would betray him. All throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus isn't even really dropping hints about it. I mean, he's just coming right out and saying things that you're like, what? Right, like John 6, 70, he says this. Did I, he's talking to the apostles. They're in a room. And he's talking to the apostles. He says, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? I mean, can you imagine how awkward that must have been, by the way? Them looking at each other like, it's not me. It's probably right? Judas was known from the beginning as the one who would betray Jesus, who would sell him out, who would go from apostle to apostate. I mean, this is, I think, a very important lesson here for us as Christians today. And that is this, your position and your authority that God gives you does not necessarily define the character of your faith. That's a hard lesson to learn. Just because you've been given positional authority by God does not mean you're truly born again. God uses all kinds of non-believing, wicked people to accomplish his purposes throughout human history. This applies to me as well, by the way. I'm not exempt from this, this hard lesson. As a pastor, my hope is that 50 years from now, people will look back on my ministry and, and see a life of faithful proclamation to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and his word. But look, we won't know that for sure until another 50 years has passed. This is why Paul emphasizes the importance of running the race, of finishing, of fighting the good fight until the end. The most important day, listen to me, the most important day of your life as a Christian is not the first one, but the last one. As important as the first one is, the day you come to faith, praise God, what a moment, right? You write that date down in your Bible. It's just like the, the most glorious day of all time. It's not the most glorious day of all time. The most glorious day of all time is the last one. Because the last one will tell us how genuine your faith really was. You can have years of faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. And if in the end you walk away from the faith before you die, those years, hear me, mean nothing to you. There's no bartering system. It's not like, well, I was 30 years as a pastor and then I left the faith and denied Jesus and died. And you, you get to the gates and you're like, well, but what about those 30 years, God? Yeah, I mean, God can use anyone for anything for his purposes. That means nothing. The last day answers the important questions. Did you make it to the end? Did you run the race well? 
Did you fight the good fight until your last breath? Judas did not, and he was an apostle. If he can fall off the wagon, any one of us can. And I want to be very clear about this, because I think this is an important detail that you need to connect with. I'm not saying you can lose your salvation either. I'm not saying that at all. I don't believe you can. I believe God saves, God redeems with no bearing on your part, nothing you do to earn salvation. There's nothing you do to lose it. It's a work of God. So here's what that means. I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. I'm saying you prove your salvation as you persevere to the end. Judas didn't lose his salvation. He never had it. He never had it. He proved that through his actions. And honestly, it was clear before his actions through the words of Jesus himself. I've heard people <coughs> through, the, through the years make statements like, well, maybe Judas was saved. You know, like maybe he was saved and he just had a bad day. No chance. <laughs> no chance. Je- Jesus says things like this, John 17, 12. He says, the son of destruction, the son of hell. That's the same, it, it, you can think of it that way. He is from the beginning meant to betray Jesus and destroy himself. And yet, Jesus is like, you'll be an apostle. There's a lesson there, I think, real important one that we've got to connect with. These are the apostles. Ragtag bunch of guys, right? Social rejects, bottom of their class, low GPA, <laughs> failed Bible knowledge trivia every summer camp. Some of them didn't even go to summer camp. And yet, these are the guys that Jesus calls as apostles. Now, I think an important question is, what even is an apostle? What does that even mean? And and further, are there still apostles today? And my answer to that, as I mentioned earlier, is no, there are not. And that answer hinges on what the Bible says an apostle is. The word apostle in the Greek, apostolos, it is a word that means one who is sent as a messenger. The word in and of itself is actually pretty broadly understood in the New Testament, um, sort of just generally as one who is sent as a messenger. It's it's a very broad understanding of it. You can think of this as a delegate, uh, one who goes on behalf of another as a messenger. In this sense of the word, there are still apostles today. We just don't refer to them as apostles. We refer to them as missionaries. We, We met two of them last week, Mike and Janelle Richard. Missionaries in Indonesia, who, by the way, made it to Indonesia safely. They are there. Spoke with uh, their dad, Roger, today, who is meeting them there, I believe, next weekend uh, to begin a workshop in language translation for the particular Bible project they're working on. But this is kind of a a modern-day understanding of the general word, or the general understanding or definition of apostle would be a missionary. People who just go as messengers on their behalf. So there's a general meeting, but there's also a much narrower understanding of the word as well. And this is true for other words in Greek additionally. So think for a moment about the word deacon. You've heard this word before, more than likely. Deacon in the New Testament is a word that has a broad general definition and also a narrower limited definition. So the word deacon in Greek, diakonos, is a word that means servant. Just very broadly, servant. In this sense, we are all to be deacons because we're all to be servants, right? To serve the least of these, to serve one another. When Jesus in Mark 10, 45, in chapter 10, which will be there in about seven years, he says, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. He's literally saying in the Greek, the son of man came not to be deaconed, but to deacon. 
It's the same word, diakoneo. It's the, the, the verbal form of diakonos. In this sense, everyone is meant to be a deacon. But there's also a narrower, more limited definition of this word that we see in certain contexts that is not meant for everyone. It's an office of the church. Like an elder or pastor, it is a deacon. It's a much more limited role. Not everyone will be a deacon. You have to meet certain qualifications and be called as a deacon in the context of the church. So there's general and there's narrow. The same can be said for the word apostle as well. There's the general understanding of apostle, which is one who is sent as a messenger. There's a more narrow, limited definition in certain contexts, one being here, that's a special office with qualifications. And that office is closed. Here's why. In order to understand why, you need to understand what the qualifications are to be, in the limited sense, an apostle. And these conditions are outlined in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. In Acts 1, the remaining disciples minus Judas, because he's right gone, uh, they have to replace Judas with another individual that meets certain conditions or qualifications in order to become the next replacement apostle, which, by the way, ends up being a man named Matthias. Verses 21 and 22, it says this. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. This is after resurrection ascension. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So here are the qualifications according to Acts 1, 21 and 22. He must be a man. He needed to be among the original group that traveled with Jesus and the apostles, beginning with John's baptism of Jesus, and it needed to be called by Jesus as an apostle, which they accomplished, by the way, in Acts chapter 1 with casting lots, sort of like drawing straws. They believe that God, and I believe that he did as well, operated through this to make the selection for that replacement. Now, can you see the problem with being an apostle today? These qualifications, they're pretty hard to hit unless you're roughly 2,000 years old, and unless you're Dracula, that's probably not happening. And if you are, you have bigger problems than I can solve. This office is closed. And here's the reality. We don't need new apostles. Why? Because we still appeal to the authority of the original apostles for all matters of faith and practice. They still are the standard to which the church looks. They are the foundation of the church. This is reflected all throughout the New Testament and to a large degree even here in Mark 3. Look at verse 13 again. Notice how this whole thing begins. <coughs> it says, and he went up on the mountain, uh, which doesn't seem like too big of a deal until you realize that mountains are significant in Mark's gospel. Mountains are the place where major revelation takes place, where God reveals kind of big details or significant acts of God occur. Transfiguration, again, is one of those examples. That's a big moment in the ministry of Jesus. It takes place on a mountain. The location indicates something major is about to happen. Something big and important is about to go down. And notice in verse 14, it says that Jesus appointed them. It's the Greek term poieo. It's a word that means to make or construct. So in other words, this is more than a simple appointment to a task. Jesus is making or creating something here. 
Something is being formed or constructed in this moment. And notice how many apostles there are. How many of them are there? There are 12. Why is that number significant? What else bears the number 12? The tribes of Israel. Yes, which represent the people of God throughout all of the Old Testament. They form the foundation of the people of God, the the progeny by which the people of God spring forward. Mark is communicating in this moment that Jesus is constructing a new people of God for a new covenant that he intends to ratify with his blood, a covenant that will be remembered for millennia to come through the Lord's Supper, which he institutes with these 12 men. We don't need new apostles. The original apostles, minus Judas, plus Matthias, and eventually Paul, which means, by the way, just as a side note, Bible trivia, Paul is kind of technically the 14th apostle, not the 13th, just for what it's worth. They form the foundation for the people of God known as the church. What does Ephesians 2.20 say? What does Paul say there? He says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The apostles and the prophets, the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New Testament form the foundation on which the church stands with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And we see this reflected and played out in the book of Acts. Who do they appeal to for all spiritual matters? The apostles. Acts 2.42, one of the earliest accounts of the early church practice, says, and they devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and the prayers. You see, Jesus was forming a new people in these 12. They become the foundation for the church. They become the foundation for all that we believe and teach for generations to come. Who do we appeal to today? Who are we appealing to right now? The apostles, books and letters written largely by apostles or ones who were influenced by apostles, as is the case with Mark. Our denomination is not particularly big on creeds and confessions, which is a little sad because I think they do actually play a a, a decent role in spiritual formation. But do you know what the earliest creed is called historically? The Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed. The apostles are the foundation of the people of God still today with Christ as the chief cornerstone who called them into service. And that brings us back to this big idea this morning that we began with of calling, of God's calling. Jesus called the apostles to himself. And while he no longer calls apostles, he does call people to other things. And so it's important that we understand how this works. So I want to end with just two quick big ideas on the calling of God. I want to talk about the purpose of God and the particulars. I'm sorry, the purpose of the call of God and the particulars of the call of God. Let's start with the purpose. When Jesus calls you out of darkness and into light, out of your former life and into the kingdom of God, there are two purposes according to this text, that are really important for you to connect with. Number one, he calls you so that you might be with him. Look at the first part of verse 14. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. I I want you to understand the simple beauty of this detail. One of the reasons Jesus calls you out of your former life and into his kingdom is simply that you might be with him, that you might be with Jesus. Jesus desires you to be with him. That's amazing news. There's there's no expectations beyond that. Just be with me, he says. But notice the other purpose, because there is another purpose here in verses 14 and 15. Read them together. 
And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. The purpose of God's call on your life is not only for you to be with him, but for you to be sent by him as well. He doesn't just call you to sit idly on your hands. He calls you that he might send you as his witness. Go and be my witness, Jesus says, Acts 1.8. Go and make disciples, Jesus says, Matthew 28.18-20. You could say it this way. God calls you to himself so that you would not only know him, but that you would also make him known. Here's what this means practically. It means regardless of what your job is, or what your circumstances are, or what your career is, or the season of life you find yourself in, the calling of God on your life is always at play. Because regardless of what's happening around you, you can rest in the presence of Christ and proclaim the gospel and the power of Christ. So maybe you have a job that you don't love. Maybe you have a job you're not passionate about. Go and live out your calling there. Make him known, proclaim him to others. Reflect the light of Jesus wherever you are. Maybe you're exactly where you're supposed to be for the purpose of making him known there. If you've been called by Christ, you've been called to know him and to make him known. And you can do that at any job, in any school, or in any environment where there are people. You don't have to choose a calling over a career. You need to hear that. You can live out your calling in any career. In any career, whatever you're doing. If you're flipping burgers, make Jesus known. If you're a senior executive, a CEO somewhere, you better be making Jesus known. You can live it out in any career. That's the purpose of the call. To be with him, to be sent by him. Let's talk last about the particulars of the call just for a moment. Jesus called the 12 particularly to be apostles. To what has he called you particularly to? That's a good question. To answer this, you need to be aware of the spiritual gifting the Holy Spirit gave to you when you came to faith in Jesus. The Bible tells us that when you come to faith in Christ and are born again, you receive the Holy Spirit, and with the Holy Spirit, he gives you specific gifts, different gifts for different people. Not everyone gets the same gift, and he intends to use those gifts as you fulfill your calling. So understanding the gift that you've been given might be a helpful detail in figuring out what your calling is. If you've been gifted to teach and or preach, you can fulfill that call in a number of ways. Teaching in Bible study, life Bible studies here. Teaching in the City Kids or the City Light Student Ministry. Perhaps you've been called to teach and preach in a larger setting like this one. If so, you need to make yourself known so that we can begin working with you and trying to find you opportunities in various ministries to practice and sharpen that gifting that when the timing is right, God calls you, you're ready. Maybe you've been given the gift of hospitality. This is another one that I see that is so, so important and so widespread. How do you use the gift of hospitality? You can live it out in a lot of ways. Opening up your home to individuals, to minister to them, whether that be informally as you're led or formally as a life group. It might be serving in the host team. Did you know that you can potentially impact someone's entire day by the way you greet them by setting the tone for them in the morning when they come in? How they end up interacting and engaging with people in the first several minutes of their time in church will set the tone largely in part for their rest of their morning here, if not their whole day. And for guests, we know statistically speaking, they're likely to come back based on their experience within the first five to 10 minutes, long before they ever worship, 
and hear me preach and sometimes make ridiculous jokes. <laughs> These are just two examples. Like, I mean, we could go through the whole list. We don't have time this morning. But you can see, hopefully, how knowing what your gifting is might be important to figuring out what your calling is. You need to figure that out. Some of you have been Christians a long time. You have no idea what your spiritual gifts are. You need to figure that out. Stat. I did a series on, uh, it's on our YouTube channel. It was back in 2020 called Gifted, where we walked through what the different spiritual gifts are. It was eight, 10 weeks long. I don't remember how long now. I've slept since then. But uh, on week one, I've hyperlinked in the description there on YouTube a spiritual gifts test that you can take. It's not perfect, but it's a good place to start. It'll help you evaluate maybe what your gifts are, and then you can learn throughout that series how those gifts are meant to work out. But you can live out your calling anywhere. It begins with you understanding to where you've been called. And then just notice quickly, verse 20 and 21, this is how this passage ends. It says, then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. He's crazy. His family thinks he's lost his mind. They attempt to seize him, a word that means to bind or tie up and carry him off because they think you're off your rocker, Jesus. And let me just say as a closing application here, to an unredeemed person, to a non-Christian, when you live out your calling in your life, they are likely to think you're crazy too. It's just bottom line. It's okay. We are a little crazy as Christians. We do really strange crazy things, don't we? Like, for example, sometimes what we'll do is we'll gather together, we'll eat stale crackers and drink juice while imagining Jesus being brutally beaten and crucified. We'll read passages where Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Non-Christians would think like, so is this cannibalism? What is going on? This is weird. Yeah, it is a little weird. But it's awesome because Jesus is awesome. And this is what he commands us to do, to remember the significant sacrifice made on our behalf that we might have life and freedom. And so we're going to practice that now. As always, I want to give you ground rules for communion. Number one, we believe that this is a practice meant for Christians, for believers. If you're a guest with us this morning and you're a non-believer, we love that you're here. Uh, pray that you would come to faith in Jesus. This is something that we believe is meant for Christians. Um, number two, this is not meant to be taken lightly if you are a Christian. So, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 11, 27 through 29 says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. As always, I just wanna, I wanna implore you that if you have some kind of secret hidden sin in your life, that you need to confess, if there is some broken relationship that you know you need to make right and it's hanging on you, do not come to the Lord's table. Go and make peace. Go and do what you need to do. We got one more meal time after this at 11. Plenty of time for you to make a phone call, send a text message, get with someone and do what you need to do on your part and then come back to the Lord's table. 
We want to do this in as worthy of a manner as possible as we are. I'm going to read the passage here. Kelsey's going to lead us here in a song in a moment. As you receive the elements this morning, as some of you already have, uh, I'm going to ask you that when you feel ready and led, go ahead and take that. I'm, I'm not going to give you a cue. I'm going to read the whole entire passage here. And as Kelsey leads, we're going to just give you some time to be alone with the Lord in prayer. And uh, when you feel led and once you have the elements in hand, you take them uh, at your uh, discretion, and then I will close us in prayer at the very end. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 26. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
various gifts and skills that might be used to, to make you known to other people. We thank you that you called the apostles and that they provide the foundation to which the church still looks, the standard to which the church still looks even 2,000 years later. You've formed out of them a new people, the church, a body of people that remember still millennia later the broken body and the shed blood through communion, through Lord's Supper, which you established with those 12. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We love you. We confess that you're Lord. Pray these things in your name. Amen. God bless you all. Thank you for being here this morning. We'll see you next week.